0: Double. Your
2: the- hands.
3: Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, very acutely aware of a mouth sound that I just made, um, and now I've drawn all of your attention to it. Good morning, Inez.
0: Good morning. I don't know how many mouth sounds everybody's ready
3: to listen to today, but... Um, I'm our sure it'll will be, be making sounds. <laughs> yeah. We'll be interviewing. Yes. We, it's, uh, oh my gosh. It is, it's, uh, I, I still have 26th January on our run sheet, but it is February now. We are a whole month into the new year. I hope people have settled into 2023. You're not uh, at the top of your little notebooks writing 2022 and then scratching out the two or like doing, trying to be a cool guy and converting the second or the third two into a three. Um, Anyway, that's just uh, me continuing to talk. So uh, let's get into what we've got on for today's show. Um, we're going to start by hearing a speech given by Dr. Arjun Makijani, who's the president of the Institute for Energy and Environment Research at the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity International Forum webcast, which was held via Zoom on the 17th of December 2022. And this was organized by the Citizens Conference to condemn further pollution of the ocean. And this um, speech Include a discussion of the technical details of the flaws of the current treatment of waste from the Fukushima accident. So it'd be really interesting to hear about that.
0: And then we'll be joined by Amal, who is a Palestinian organizer, advocate, and daughter of Palestinian refugees. She lives and works on Bidigal country. And she joins us today to touch on the University of Melbourne's adoption of the highly problematic International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti Semitism. And then, uh, we are joined with a very fun interview with two of my friends, actually. So, uh, Goddess Navi Navikaran is a DJ, theatre producer, musician and choreographer from India based in Nam. And Levi Kola is a music producer, singer, songwriter and DJ. And they both join us today to talk about their upcoming event, Moss Process, which is actually tomorrow, 3rd of Feb at Concrete Boot Bar, Boots Bar in Richmond. And, You can buy tickets on Eventbrite. Also, a quick disclaimer, I am the opening DJ (laughs) for this event, so come on down and say hello.
3: Yeah, that's Inez just uh, introducing a conflict of interest there in her breakfast interviewing um but this we're all about transparency here um and finally we're going to be joined by Renega inpomar from the Tamil Refugee Council and Renega is a young Th- Elam Tamil activist and law arts student with a long history of organizing to amplify Elam Tamil issues um, as part of TRC and outside of it and she's going to be speaking with us today in the lead up to the 75th anniversary of Tamil oppression day which falls on the 4th of February and for which the Tamil Refugee Council is going to be holding a public demonstration outside the Sri Lankan High Commission in Canberra. So we'll talk about that and also hopefully be able to discuss what people can do to support remotely if you're not able to head down to Canberra, because uh, the Tamil Refugee Council is uh, also constantly uh, organizing really important events um, and, you know, public demonstrations to draw attention to the plight of Elam Tamils uh, in so-called Melbourne as well. Um, but we might... Uh, Leave it there with all of the wonderful things that we'll be bringing uh, to you today, and uh, we'll join you shortly with the headlines.
4: Wa carries the stories of our ancestors, forever watching over us and protecting us. Join me, Teldum Chogo Edwards, for Ballam War, a journey of stories, yarns, and music about freedom and survival from 2 p.m. to 3 p.m., every Thursday afternoon on 3CR 855 on your radio dial.
1: As I walk alone on my dreaming track tonight I can hear the voices of my elders Their ancient sounds echo in my mind To the beat of
3: clapstick and the dancing And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And these are the news headlines for Thursday, the 2nd of February. First Nations listeners, please be advised that this headline does contain mention of a First Nations person who has died. The coronial inquest into the death in custody of Gunichmara, Jaja Wurrung, Wiradjuri and Yorta Yorta woman Veronica Nelson has this week concluded that Miss Nelson's death was preventable and has called for an overhaul of the Victorian bail system. Outside the court earlier this week, Ms. Nelson's mother, Auntie Donna Nelson, described her daughter as someone who loved her family and culture, and called for others to fight with her against the racism and violence of a broken justice system. The inquest found that current bail laws discriminate against First Nations people and result in grossly disproportionate rates of remand in custody. The coroner also referred Correct Care, the health care provider for the Dame Phyllis Frost Centre, to the State Director of Public Prosecutions for Breach of the Health and Safety Act.
0: Also in headlines, and an additional warning that this headline may be distressing for some listeners. An Iraqi refugee detained at Willowwood Detention Centre in Sydney was found dead in his cell earlier this week in suspected suicide. The 28-year-old man has, helped, has been held at the centre for the past five years and advocates say he requested several times to be moved from the compound due to tensions with other detainees. Refugee advocates are asking why the move requests were ignored and have said the event has caused enormous distress inside Willowwood in an environment already so harmful for the mental health of people detained there. Now, if you're feeling distressed by this news and you would like to talk to someone, you can call Lifeline's crisis support service on 131114. 14.
3: Also in news headlines, the Royal Commission into RoboDebt continues this week, revealing that the coalition government adopted harmful media strategies to hit back at criticism of their illegal debt recovery scheme. A former media advisor to ex-Human Services Minister Alan Tudge said personal information of RoboDebt victims was released to, quote, more friendly media, end quote, in a bid to deter the victims from speaking out. The media strategy targeted victims who were going public, with Tudge requesting files containing the Centrelink transactions for every single person who appeared in the media, and I understand, of people who were involved in campaigning against RoboDebt as well. Tudge, the third ex-coalition government minister to give evidence at the Royal Commission appeared yesterday and continues to deny responsibility, despite being in charge of the scheme when the lawfulness of the central, quote, income averaging method was first questioned.
0: And finally, in headlines, following the snap three-month return to alcohol bans in some remote towns in the Northern Territory last week, advice is due to the federal government on whether the ban should be permanently reinstated. In the meantime, some Marantwe or Alice Springs residents have put forward a plan to sue the NT government over the management of the recent spike in violence and crime in the town. The class action notion was brought to a recent community meeting at residents and business owners, with many describing the meeting as hostile, and one that did not allow First Nations elders to lead. First Nations Araditri elders say the lay. The blame for the violence does not lie with the Northern Territory government, but rather with the federal government's harmful intervention policies, which lapsed last year with no proper transition plan. Elders say the Howard government's intervention made ghost towns of remote areas, placing massive pressure on Alice Springs. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 2nd of February, and you're listening to 3CR on 855 AM.
3: I just wanted to add something in light of the... Tragic and awful news out of Villawood. And that is to remind people that Rise ex detainees are organizing a boycott of midsummer 2023, um, you know, because of the willful engagement and, um, you know, platforming of immigration detention facility operators, including Serco and uh, also prison and custodial uh, organizations such as the Geo Group who uh, I understand that the geo group and Victoria police are going to be marching in the midsummer parade. Um, So, yeah, Rise Refugee on all socials. So that's at Rise Refugee on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, And they're calling to boycott Midsummer 2023 uh, and show solidarity in particular um, with queer ex-detainees, as well as other ex-detainees in general, um, because, you know, we can't afford to normalize having these organizations, um, you know, Pinkwash their activities, uh, launder their images through engagement with the queer community, um, as if there is not this parallel extreme violence being perpetrated uh, against those who are most marginalized in our community. So, just a reminder that Rise are calling for that boycott and uh, encourage people to, uh, you know, follow them on socials to find out more. You're listening to three CR eight five five AM.
4: So here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijoma Umbinio, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Ayan every Monday at 2.30pm on 3CR Community I Radio.
3: we're back and uh, we're going now to a speech given by Dr. Arjun Makijani, President of the Institute for Energy and Environment Research at the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity International Forum webcast, which was held via Zoom on the 17th of December 2022, and which was organized by the Citizens Conference to condemn further pollution of the ocean. In this Dr. Makajani discusses the technical details of the flaws in the current treatment of waste from the Fukushima accident, and he describes the reaction of the Tokyo Electric Company, TEPCO, an international atomic agency, to a memorandum that he presented, as well as discussing some possible alternatives to deal with the waste.
5: Thank you very, very much. We have been working for the Pacific Islands Forum, and the five members of the panel have different kinds of expertise, some in radiation. I, I have my engineering background from University of California and nearly 50 years of studying these issues. And then we had oceanographic and ecological experts and nuclear physicists and so on. We found, actually, to my surprise, that the depth of the problems was much greater than we anticipated. And our Concerns deepened the more we discussed with TEPCO in Japan. And at one point in the last meeting, uh, the Nuclear Regulation Authority also joined us. We also were able to observe the IAEA presentations to the forum. And throughout this process, our concerns and my own concern deepened instead of lessening. You might imagine that a scientific exchange would lessen the concerns, but they actually got bigger. And our memorandum was a complete agreement and consensus between five scientists with quite different backgrounds and expertise. So that also was very gratifying that we're able to come to this conclusion as independent scientists. So there are deficiencies in four areas. And this is a huge thing, four major areas of deficiencies. One is, does TEPCO, do we know the contents of the tank's And what are the measurement protocols and what does it mean eventually for this proposal to discharge and what we know about safety? So we have been told that it will be safe, but if we don't know properly what is in the tanks, how can we say that it's safe? So that was one major area of concern. Are the measurements good? Are they sufficient? Are they statistically representative? The other thing was, will the Alps perform As required. So you reprocess, you retreat the water, some of which, as you have heard, has um, contaminants, radionuclides other than tritium, far in excess of allowable limits. And will it remove those radionuclides sufficiently as claimed by TEPCO? We are not so sure. Then there were deficiencies in the analysis of the impacts on the ocean. And some of the things in that regard were also quite surprising, uh, because not very scientific in some way. And that's not an easy thing to say, but that is what we concluded. And then lack of consideration of alternatives, we proposed three of them that had not been considered as yet, or at least two have not been considered, maybe third partly considered and rejected. So there are 64 radionuclides in these tanks, according to TEPCO, but only nine have been routinely sampled. So we had three years' worth of data that was supplied to us by TEPCO that we analyzed. Uh, Dr. Ferenza Dalnoki-Veres actually spent a lot of time going over those spreadsheets. They were not in good condition to be analyzed. The units were different. It was, it was uh, not a very... Scientifically mm, sound way to send data to other scientists, but we analyzed it anyway. Maximum number of radionuclides we saw, uh, 19 out of 64. Most of the time, it was 7, plus tritium and carbon-14, and so 9. Sampling was inadequate in quantity, so not enough samples. So there are tank groups, number of tanks are connected. Uh, they're quite large tanks, and there was only one 30-liter sample taken per tank group, just one. Sampling was unrepresentative. That means does it was not statistically designed to know averagely what is in the tank. So we have presented these findings to TEPCO. They did not dispute that the sampling was unrepresentative that basically the idea was that we're not very concerned right now with what is in the tanks. We're concerned with what happens at the time of discharge. And then only 20% of the tanks have been sampled. So overall, the sampling situation is very poor, in my opinion. Those words are not in the memorandum, but that is my conclusion. The knowledge of the radionuclide contents in the tanks is far from sufficient to say, we are going to be able to treat this successfully and discharge and the discharge will be safe and will meet the limits then there was the question of the what do these measurements tell us so strontium 90 and cesium 137 are produced in roughly the same quantities as the reactor generates power so roughly the same quantities in the in the molten fuel in the reactors but in the wastewater in the water the tanks the strontium-90 and cesium-137 ratios are quite variable. I'll show you how variable they are. But it means that ALPS treatment may not be working uniformly to remove one or both radionuclides in the same way over time. It may mean that uh, they're collecting different amounts of radioactivity. Uh, the efficiency of ALPS varies we have not had a scientifically sound explanation of why these ratios are so different. And these are two of the most important radionuclides for ecological impact and, and health impact um, that need to be considered. Uh, so there are radionuclides other than tritium in the tanks. So some of the tanks have sludge. That is, you know, particles that, ha- that have settled in the tanks. So it's not like the the tanks are all uniformly liquid and they can be pumped out and treated Uh, some of the tanks are like that. But the early tanks, for the first two or three years after the accident, there were a lot of particulates and some of those particulates have settled. My own suspicion, and this is just me speaking, is the sludges in the bottom of these tanks are probably much more radioactive than the average of the water. And they will also disproportionately contain plutonium isotopes and americium-241, the highly radioactive Uh, alpha emitters that are quite dangerous to health, we did not get a very clear answer about what they're going to do about these sludges. Now, removal of the water above the sludges could mean many particulates go up with the water into the ALPS treatment system. How will the ALPS treatment system handle it? We didn't receive an answer. One of the most surprising problems, and you will please permit me to explain this technical problem to you at some length, because this was the most surprising unscientific part for which we got zero explanation when we raised it. TEPCO measured a fission product called tellurium-127. Tellurium-127 is produced while the reactor operates and generates energy, but it has a half life of only 9 hours so accident was on march 11th. by the end of april 2011 tellurium 127 should have disappeared almost totally and by the end of 2011 nothing should be found nothing and yet in 2019 they gave us several measurements they indicated very high threshold of detection, which didn't make any technical science, scientific sense. That's not how measuring instruments that are good will respond to high contamination. And then the numbers there were very large concentrations of tellurium in 2019, which is technically impossible unless there are accidental criticalities chain reactions going on in the molten fuel. So we have raised this in the memorandum. We raised this with TEPCO. The IAEA has it. The Nuclear Regulation Authority has it. When TEPCO responded during a meeting, they said, well, you know, 2019, but it was 2014. And so I pointed out that in 2014, you should find nothing. And they said, well, maybe December 2011. And I said, In December 2011, you should find nothing. This indicates that measurements are not being done in a scientifically sound spirit. And if you make a mistake, we all make mistakes. I certainly have made mine. But if you go to my institute's website, you will find errata. Sometimes when we make mistakes, we we say, yeah, we made a mistake and we publish a correction and inform the public what is the correct number or what is the correct situation. But instead of doing that, TEPCO has failed to acknowledge this problem. It's not the first time. Ferenz, uh, my colleague, pointed this out a similar problem in 2011, and I worked with him back then. I was quite active in analyzing Fukushima issues after the accident. And TEPCO responded by removing the data from the website, but never explained how these problem measurements came to be in its data. So this is a huge problem for me because it indicates not approaching the problem in a scientific spirit. And if you have made a mistake, you should just admit it, fess up, move on, figure out what gave rise to the mistake. So here are the strontium and cesium ratios of out-treated water. So this is water that has been treated and then before entering the tank, some measurements were made. So strontium 90 to cesium ratio can be as high as 10,000 As high as 100, as low as one. So many measurements have ratios greater, much greater than one. And then also it can be less than one, one tenth, and even less than one tenth. So this variation by a factor of more than 10,000 between the lowest and the highest has no explanation. And these are very, very important radionuclides. And then in some of the water, they are present in quite high concentrations. So Will they be able to remove it? The testing of the ALPS system has not been sufficient in my mind to say that ALPS treatment will be successful. When this was raised, basically, TEPCO and the IAEA indicated that, oh, they will just treat ALPS, run it through ALPS, and treat it many times. How many times? We don't have a clear answer. How long will it take if you have to treat it many times? Will it be 30 years then, 40 years, 50, 60? No answer. So you can see the whole process just in the beginning from the measurements, what's in the tags, how will that affect the ALPS functioning. None of that is being done in a scientifically sound manner. And if it were just our opinion without talking to TEPCO, you could say, well, you know, maybe we made a mistake, but we have presented these things to TEPCO and not received any response saying that, you know, Expert panel, you are wrong. This is the correct thing. This is how we are going to do it. But no, we have not received any satisfactory answers. So as I have said, presence of sludges, the high variability of strontium and cesium, potential stirring of particulates, all these are going to be potential problems for treatment. And then if there are problems and you have already decided you're going to discharge and you're not doing anything about it now to prevent the problem, then it could become stuck. Of course, more water is being generated. So while they say 30 or 40 years, this whole thing could run 50, 60, 70, 80 years. So the urgency question is kind of mysterious because this is going to go on for the half a century or the better part of a century. It's very risky to decide to proceed without adequate knowledge of what's in the tanks. That's detailed enough to say if the Alps will function properly and then to test Alps with the kinds of materials and water that is going to be treated, including the tanks with the sludges. One of the big surprises was that when the IAEA got our materials, they basically have said, we don't need to know now what is in the tanks. We will see after Alps treatment whether the water is safe to discharge or not. What will you do if it's not safe, doesn't meet the criteria, run it through Alps again. How many times? We don't know. This is not a good way to proceed with this huge, important proposal and then say in advance that we know it's going to be safe. I don't think that they can make this statement with scientific confidence. At least I would never do that. So ecosystem assessment. So first of all, there are these other radionuclides: strontium, cesium. They're not going to be completely removed. Strontium concentration in TEPCO's assessment was assessed to be a maximum of 10 but strontium-90 can concentrate in the bone and through the ecosystem food chain much more than that, and that has not been taken into account. Um, tritium now, tritium is radioactive hydrogen. It's radioactive water is what we're talking about. When living beings take in water, it becomes organically bound. You know, our DNA as carbon and hydrogen and oxygen. That's mostly what we're made of, and nitrogen, phosphorus, a few other trace things, but mostly hydrogen, carbon, and oxygen. So if your hydrogen is radioactive, then your cells are going to have radioactivity. And let me say, I've studied tritium a lot. And so this is me speaking. Actually, I have a book uh, that is going to come out on tritium next month. When tritium gets inside the cell, it's mostly water. And it ionizes that water. It creates hydroxyl radicals. Uh, These are very chemically reactive. And they can damage not the nuclear DNA alone. They can damage the mitochondria, which are the energy system of the body. So these mitochondria produce ATP. When you move, when your heart beats, when we breathe, it's the mitochondria talking. They convert our food into the energy that we need for the heart to beat. And what hydroxyl radicals do, what tritium can do when it enters the cell and ionizes and radializes the water, it can cause dna damage in the mitochondria not the nuclear dna but the mitochondrial dna which is in the cytoplasm when we raise this issue with stepco in their ecosystem assessment they ignore organically bound tritium when we raise this in a meeting they said well we can take into account uh, that it will be Organically bound tritium will be 10% based on official assessment of the International Commission on Radiological Protection. But what was that report? Well, what happens when human beings drinking water is contaminated with tritium? What happens in our body? But we're not talking about drinking water. We're talking about seawater contaminated with tritium and what will happen to the whole ecosystem. And when we raise this issue that you you have to consider The entire ecosystem, the benthic organisms at the bottom, the pelagic fish, would roam the whole oceans and everything in between. They said we're not required to consider those things. And that's where it stands. That is not an ecologically sound way to approach this huge problem. The intergenerational and transboundary impacts have also not been given due attention. So... Alternatives. So some alternatives have been considered, and you know that. I won't dwell on it. But what we felt is that the water can be treated through ALPS, new tanks built that are seismically safe to store this waste uh, for a long time. If you remove most of the radionuclides, then you have essentially tritium and carbon-14 and mostly tritium. And tritium has a half-life of 12.3 years. So after 60 or 70 years, it will mostly be gone. Actually, this discharge could well last more than that. But once you have done that, you also have other options because tritium, as has been said, is a beta emitter in that demonstration that TEPCO has been doing. If you take that demonstration and ask, well, what happens if you make concrete with tritium, that tritiated water? The, The concrete will essentially stop those beta rays if you make concrete, for example, um, that, that is not for buildings, but for underneath of bridges, things, stuff that will not have human contact, the radiation dose potential would be eliminated. And you know, even when you take apart those structures after 50, 60, 70 years, the tritium will be pretty much gone. There's also bioremediation. Various plants and fungi can concentrate tritium and then that concentrated tritium can be treated as solid waste. There's so much solid waste. This decommissioning is going to be a huge, giant problem. This particular problem should be one of the less difficult problems, and what TEPCO and the Nuclear Regulation Authority giving permission to do this have done is they have taken one of the less difficult problems and are converting it into a multi-generational. Pacific Ocean-wide problem for generations to come. We were dismayed, and I was especially dismayed, that when the IAEA learned of this, they basically said, we don't need to attend to this now. We will see later after the ALPS treatment, and we don't really need to pay attention to what is in the tanks now. This is, I think, an extremely serious problem Given that IAEA is the internationally recognized authority on these kinds of issues, they are doing a good job in many contexts, including in Ukraine currently. But in Japan, my opinion is that they have not done their due diligence. And that is a very disappointing thing to say. And I say it very reluctantly. That's the end of my presentation. Thank you.
3: And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM and uh, it is 731 in the morning on Thursday, the 2nd of February. That's why we're in the second month of the year already. Uh, And you just heard a speech given by Dr. Arjun Makijani, who's the president of the Institute for Energy and Environment Research at the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity International Forum webcast, which was held over Zoom on the 17th of December 2022 and organized by the Citizens Conference to Condemn Further Pollution of the Ocean. And Dr. Makijani discussed the technical details of the flaws in the current treatment of waste from the Fukushima accident. And in that, he also described the reaction of the Tokyo Electric Company, TEPCO, an international atomic agency, to a memorandum that he presented. And he also described some possible alternatives to deal with the waste. So uh, we are now going to be going to a new track from Jen Cloer called My Witch. And... I just want to say, um, this is one of those those moments if you watch the video for My Witch uh, that will hopefully awaken something in you, because my God did it awaken something in me. So uh, just a little spoiler alert the video features Georgia Mack uh, from uh, of uh, famously of Camp Cope, but also a wonderful artist in her own right. But here's My Witch by Jen Clower.
1: When you hit that perfect pitch I wanna be, wanna be that switch Yeah, you're gonna make me sweat Give me what you got, what you wanna get Pull me in and hold me down Show me with a look what you're gonna do Now, honey, there ain't no shame Getting what you want, gotta give it a name It's more than a feeling Published or not has been on air for over 20 years. And in that time, it's been hosted by Jan Goldsmith. Well, just recently, over the last seven years, I've been joined by David McLean. We'll be talking about text, discussing words and ideas. With local authors, authors from interstate, or sometimes even from other countries. You can stream it live or find it on your favourite podcast app. So join us... Every Thursday at eleven thirty on three CR. I've been working on my rewrite. that's right. I'm gonna change the ending. Go throw away my title and toss it in the trash.
3: Um, we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on three CR, eight five five AM. And you just heard My Witch by Jen Clover. Uh, once again, please do yourself a favor and go watch the music video which just dropped for that featuring, featuring Georgia Mac. It is uh, incredible. It's, let's just say it has made me want to work out and I only do incidental exercise. Um, we're now going to go to another track. Inez, do you want to introduce this track? Absolutely. So this track is Life on
0: Mars by Canada The Loop.
3: And Ooh. you're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR <laughs>
1: 855 5, AM. I can see your face in the stars. You on the tide. Making me question everything. Maybe your life's on Mars. Yeah, I had a little room, a little Stevie wants to fight. I don't know what's true, so I put it on ice. But if it's making you small, I'm gonna take it outside. Yeah, I'm gonna take a boser if it catches you out. Cause that's a good time. That's a green light. a good time When it feels like summer I really like summer But maybe this year it won't be like To get a stupid eye All my smart thoughts come from being stupefied Because my mind mine and cast a spell on my feeble mind And now I can't stop thinking at the speed of light But I hope you know that this is everything I ever wanted I picked my poison, no hold now i on it Truth be told, I'm lucky this is how I'm tortured It goes to show, it ain't so bad being broken hearted yeah, this year it won't be like yeah. that Woo.
3: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au You
0: just heard a very fun song that sounds like sunshine, which is Life on Mars by Canada DeLoup. That's K-A-N-A-D-A, which is Canada with a K. Very cool. (laughs) Sorry, I feel like I've got the giggles right now, but uh, we're just going to go to ACSA.
3: Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming on, on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne.
4: Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost
1: and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else.
5: Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs.
1: Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is
5: a bad deal, but muckety is
6: absolutely not a done deal.
1: You're listening to Women on the Line.
6: Welcome again to Lost in Science.
1: And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women.
2: Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play.
0: Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and
3: union news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network.
2: They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moravian. Fascism's on the march, and we say, yeah, nah.
5: Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Altaroa, and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4:30
2: PM, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters
0: And now we will be joined by Amal, who is a Palestinian organizer, advocate and daughter of Palestinian refugees. And she joins us today to touch on the University of Melbourne's adoption of the highly problematic International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism and what universities could, you know, be doing a little bit better. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Amal. Thanks for having me. Could you start off with um, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um,
4: I'm currently a Palestinian organiser, and I work closely alongside many community groups in Australia, Um, and I'm also, um, in my final year of university, uh, studying my um, Bachelor of Laws in Criminology and Criminal Justice.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, yeah, I think that's really helpful to provide some context for what's going on because you're clearly involved in um, like the community and also in an academic institution. Could yeah. you tell us more about the IHRA's definition and, and why it's concerning that people are adopting it?
4: Yeah, so um, the IHRA definition um, is fundamentally a definition of anti-Semitism that was introduced a couple of years ago. Um, And on surface level, when you have a look at the general definition, um, it seems fine and it seems um, quite standard to what um, broader society perceives as anti-Semitism. However, when we start to look at the working examples, uh, several of them raise some alarms as um, they very clearly are being used to stifle Uh, Criticism of Israel and the fundamental purpose of IHRA um, and why it's being rolled into university institutions and parliament um, is because um, pro Israel groups um, want to silence um, criticism of Israel, they want to silence activism for Palestine um, in institutions which produce knowledge which are so key for the cause.
0: Yeah, I think you know what I find interesting about you know, this quote-unquote working definition um, is that since 2018 that um, the definition has been opposed by more than, like, 40 Jewish social social justice organisations worldwide, which is, like, in support of Palestinian rights and the BDS movement. But even in the working definition on the page on their website, it says that denying the Jewish people their right to self-determination you know, e.g. claiming that the existence of the state of Israel is a racist endeavor. Now, we know, and these 40 Jewish organizations also know, that Israel is a colonial state that relies on state sanctioned violence and genocide and displacement. So no part of this is a mere conflict or just a clash. It's a very intentional regime against Palestinian sovereignty. So the fact that it's adopted as part of the university's new anti-racism pol- policy is not surprising but it's perplexing what yeah, do you I... think that academic institutions can be doing to actually show real and effective support
4: yeah no absolutely that 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 is a huge problem and it's not just 40 groups just recently 120 um, Jewish academics 128 sorry Jewish academics who are experts in anti-semitism um, and the Holocaust also signed um, an open letter um, against um, adoptions of the IHRA by the United Nations. um, And the Special Rapporteur on Racism for the United Nations um, also rejected its adoption and and called on states and institutions to um, rescind any adoption of it. Uh, So when universities adopt it within their anti-racism definition, uh, they're not actually... um, preventing anti-Semitism because things like calling, calling out Israel as a racist endeavour and calling out as a settler colonial state, as many academics have done in the past and many activists and Palestinians on the ground, um, is, actually opposing race, is actually opposing racism. Um, so it's, it's very perplexing to me that um, as a Palestinian, academics or allies um, can't make very urgent critiques against Israel um, because it's supposedly racist when what we are doing is fundamentally fighting an anti-racist cause. Uh, so universities and institutions were looking to amend their anti-racism framework or to adopt new ones. I think the first step is obviously just not adopting IHRA. Um, it's incredibly um, inconsistent and it doesn't promote anti-racism. Um, and to also not individualise racism. We don't need individual definitions um, of anti-Semitism or Islamophobia. Now, as University of Melbourne suggested, that we need a definition for Islamophobia. We're not called for one. But rather, we need to target uh, racism, colonisation, white supremacy um, as border projects, um, which target many groups in, in so many different ways, but fundamentally, um, all our experiences intersect. Um, and so it's very important that we target these as, as border projects um, and not pin groups against each other in the process.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really such an important point to highlight that there is, you know, sure, maybe there's differences, but at the end of the day, it is fighting the same thing that sometimes a lot of these, sometimes, well, a lot of the academic institutions also, um, fight, uh, represent. So I think for yourself, uh, like being in an academic institution, do you find it difficult to, uh, I know a lot of us have to exist in that space, but I guess how do you also, you know, keep yourself safe from a lot of the university's rhetoric? Because I know that can be challenging. I know it was really challenging for me as well when I was at uni too.
4: Yeah. Um, and I mean, it's challenging for a lot of um, students who who are um, people of colour, just fighting racism as a whole. Um, because our universities are are colonial institutions. At the end of the day, they were built on stolen land and they profited off colonialism. Um, So it's not surprising that universities, like, uh, at the end of the day, they're they're also racist institutions to an extent. Um, So, I mean, as a Palestinian student, um, we face a lot of, like, tolerance politics on campus. um, And, like, in the effort of whether it's public relations with the university or just simply a lack of understanding of what decolonization, settler colonialism and fighting anti-racist causes means, um, it, it tends to lead to a lot of silencing of Palestinian activism and voices on campus um, in the name of tolerance, um, because, um, because um, you know, apparently writing free Palestine on a wall, as some university students have experienced, um, is considered anti-Semitism because it makes students who support Israel Uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, we have every right to make students who support colonial regimes um, uncomfortable by um, expressing our viewpoints. There's nothing wrong with that, um, but to um, to target and, and to also not to recognise the level of harassment that a lot of Palestinian activists um, receive from um, pro-Israel students and from Zionist students um, is it, perplexing. Like when the war on Gaza was happening. Um, just under two years ago, um, a lot of students were targeted for their views, were targeted uh, for standing uh, with Gaza and for standing with Palestine um, and were receiving like, a lot a, a lot of um, really negative messaging in their inboxes. Or when the University of Melbourne Student Union passed the BDS motion, a lot of students um, were harassed on Twitter and were harassed on social media um, for simply standing with, you know, at the end of the day, a cause for... Humanity and a cause against um, a cause for decolonisation, um, and universities aren't standing with those students. They're, they're standing with the easier thing and calling for you know respectability and tolerance politics um, on our campuses, which at the end of the day um, only serves to benefit white students and only serves to benefit students who uh, support racist regimes or, or colonial institutions over here in so-called Australia or in Israel. Um, and, um, and it disservices a lot of um, people of colour, um, particularly students and academics of colour who are actually fighting these institutions.
0: Yeah, I think it's so important, um, everything that you've just said, but especially that this is, you know, when it comes down to it is promoting human rights and promoting decolonisation. Um, and it's, yeah, it's so interesting that there is such a divide when it seems so easily clear that this is, you know, what's happening is so wrong. Um I think also what, you know, for maybe people that really want to support more or what can our listeners do to show up um, and show support for Palestinian rights and oppose the AHRA's definition?
4: Yeah, um, it's really difficult, of course, um, because there's only so much that we can do. But I guess um, if you're within a university, if you work within a university institution or you're a student within one, it's important um, that as um, campaigns roll out, Um, over the next week or so to show support for those campaigns. Um, But also, if you're a part of your um, academic union, so if you're a part of the NTU, um, to speak to your local branch and possibly um, launch a campaign from within there because we know that um, union power is obviously um, very, very powerful and can drive a lot of change. And also, if you're within the student union, um, there's been a lot of pressure for some student unions to adopt IHRA, so um, obviously stand against that if you're within the student union um but also um a, like, um condemn adoptions of IHRA um at, at your university um unions and uh write motions um but also just um form campaigns and um ensure that people are aware you are, are around of it. The, there's you know students in Palestine host events on this. Um so there's so much that we can do in our institutions um to really build power um from within. Um, and to um, tell our management that this is something that we oppose, and that as students and academics, we um, stand with Palestinian rights um, and the ability for Palestinians to share um, knowledge truthfully and um, without sanction. Um, but if you're outside institutions, it's also important to put the pressure. If you're a part of a community group, write um, like to your university and tell them why you oppose. Write like to your local university and tell them why you oppose um, the IHRA. and and keep up the pressure on, on our um, institutions. Um, and I guess if the, now that universities are starting to adopt it, if uh, teachers or academics or students are finding themselves being sanctioned under this definition uh, for wrong reasons, um, as we've seen happen in the UK and the US, it's important that uh, we mobilise and we support them um, publicly um, as, if, as universities um, try to sanction um, students and academics for
0: Absolutely. There's definitely huge power in numbers um, and we'll definitely put, um, yeah, some resources in the show notes as well. And lastly, just before I let you go, is there anything at all you want to highlight or like leave our listeners with or any actions that you feel are, yeah, definitely important? Um, yeah, nothing at, at,
4: at present, but um, I think just obviously stay tuned for on our socials um, and on um, other good socials like APAN um, to look into any actions that may come out over the next week or a couple of weeks um, and um, definitely uh, try to sort, show support um, if there's an action um, that you have the ability to support um, and yeah if not um, always also just reach out whether it's to APAN, to myself or to other organisers um, within this space um, if you have questions, if you have ideas about how to show support um, within your institutions I'm always keen uh, to hear what people
0: uh, want to do. Okay, amazing. Thank you so much, Amal, for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. We've just heard from Amal, who is a Palestinian organiser, advocate and daughter of Palestinian refugees. She lives and works on Bidigal country. She joins us today, she joined us, sorry, um, to talk about the University of Melbourne and other universities in Australia, adaptation of the highly problematic AHRA definition of anti-Semitism.
3: Yeah, and um, just a reminder, I know Amal did flag uh, APAN as a great resource there. But uh, I want to let listeners know if you haven't already visited the Australia Palestine Advocacy Network or APAN's website, they do have a dedicated section of resources uh, that focus on anti Semitism and have a lot of resources uh, from Jewish uh, progressive organizations as well, talking about the problems with the IHRA definition. So you can find that by going to APAN, APAN.org.au forward slash anti Semitism. Um, And yeah, there's There's a lot of great information there and really encourage people to check it out and think critically uh, about what the imposition of this definition is doing to uh, Palestinian people's struggle for justice. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. Accent
1: Women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a in a completely
7: violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives.
1: Accent to women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the
4: How the can country. people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two where
0: there are armies there and terrorists there and such conflict every single day of their lives?
1: Accent to women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds on Community Radio 3CR.
2: Panoply? Panorama? Panpipe? Pansy? Aha! Pansexual? Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope, only on 3CR 855am digital and 3cr.org.au.
0: Now we have a very special double interview with Goddess Karan, who is a DJ, theatre producer, musician, choreographer from India, based in Nam, And Levi Kohler is a music producer, singer-songwriter and DJ. And they both joined us today to talk about their upcoming event, Moth Process, tomorrow, the 3rd of Feb at Concrete Boots Bar in Richmond. And also, again, quick disclaimer, I am the opening DJ for the event, Uh, but we will now go to this lovely interview. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Navi and Levi. Hey, how are you? (laughs) (laughs) I am good, thank you. Uh, Firstly, maybe we'll start off with Navi. Could you tell us more about how Moth Process came to be and what it's all about?
6: So, Levi and I really were obsessed with sharing, wanting to share music. We have a excellent record collection. We listen to music all the time. Levi produces music. I make music. We released my first album last year. Um, And so we also got into DJing last year and wanted to um, create a space where people could essentially come in to listen to new music, um, DJs, and in a safe space, in a space that people could gather as community. And that's essentially how Moth
0: Process came around. Amazing. Is there anything you'd like to add, Levi? Uh,
2: We also were really interested in the kind of exploration of genre. And so up until now, we've had genre-themed events. Um, We have done everything from jazz to women and rap to R&B, which was a really successful one. Um, And I'm really excited about doing more of that in the future and exploring those boundaries.
0: Yeah, amazing. And I think what's really wonderful about the event is what you want the audience to feel. Can you tell us maybe, I'll start off with Livoy, what you really want the audience to feel while they're dancing their hearts away?
6: Yeah, absolutely. So what's interesting is that especially post-COVID, there seems to be a huge appetite for events that people can come out to. When we also look at rates of social isolation, especially among queer folk, women, and people within marginalized communities, um, that includes people of color and disabled folks too, um, there seems to be a need to hang out, find friends, make community. And so one of the points of Mothraces is to create an access driven space and an event. And so People can come and hang out, eat some food, have a drink, um, meet new friends, and then if if they wanted to wish to dance, then that would be awesome. We have a dance floor available. Um, But there is so much going into how the space is available for people, um, and we're very, very excited about the access and the ways in which we can make the space accessible for different, different margins of people.
0: Yep, absolutely. I think that's really exciting, um, and yeah, their dance floor is available, ready to dance and <laughs> make friends, and um, maybe tell your crush that you like them. <laughs> Who knows what'll happen? Um
6: Valentine's Day is coming up. Oh, so... true. <laughs>
0: yeah.
6: ready on brand. <laughs>
0: um, what I what I thought was really interesting um, is that you've asked the DJs to play sets that are you know quintessentially them. Could you tell us more about what that actually means and why you chose this instead of like the theme genre nights that you've done, for instance. Maybe I'll start with Levi.
2: Yeah, to me, I think that quintessentially you as a DJ can mean whatever you interpret it to mean, which I find really exciting. But I know for me personally, I'm going to be playing a set of A lot of stuff that i'm actively listening to now not just stuff that i've tried to track down for a dj set as well as songs that i grew up with and then anything else that has inspired my own music practice that's inspired me to want to dj um and i think that the benefit of doing it this way is we're still kind of introducing ourselves to nam as djs as artists in every single industry that we work in um and having it this open Kind of invites more people into the space, but there are a lot of genres that we're really excited about exploring.
0: Amazing. What kind of set are you hoping to play, Nabi?
6: I am still figuring it out, but so far it looks like I'm putting together a femme power set. And so if you're into that, well, I'm still figuring what that looks like, but I know that it's going to be exciting and that it'll be fresh. I also think that. As DJs, we also hold a lot of power over space because we very selfishly get to play our music and expect people to enjoy them. And so with that responsibility, we also are very excited to share music, especially because music is so accessible now due to streaming um, and free sources. Um, People tend to listen to lesser and lesser new music or different music. Um, which also is due to because of capacity and whatnot. Um, and so we're very excited about sharing music that people may not have listened to, sharing music that people might find exciting and sort of going on that journey with people um, and it's always it's always fun when people pull out their phones to Shazam a song that you're playing on a on on, the, on your decks and so that they can discover a new artists and follow a new artists. We are also huge fans of playing artists that may not have, may not be mainstream. So that makes it also adding to the um, atmosphere of supporting newer artists, supporting more artists of color um, who are out there doing their own things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it is always very funny when you hear, <laughs> when you see like three people holding up their phones to the speaker, you're like, I've played a good song right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was really um what cause you've spoken about, like, you know, having a safe space and, you know, making things accessible, which is hugely important. I wanted to share something funny that happened um, to me. I went to an event recently and the the MC was just yelling on the mic and they're like, this is a safe space. Um, but I, (laughs) I was looking around and I was like, what actually have you done to make this a safe space? Like you saying this into a microphone, um, doesn't really do very much. So I know that it's been challenging to find a venue that's safe enough to find, um, yeah, like a space and, the people that are involved, how do you think you could actually create a safe space? What can actual venue owners do as well? Maybe I'll start off with uh, Navi.
6: Yeah, thank you. I think safety is a continuous process and it involves everyone who is in the space to make it safe. I think I hold the responsibility to make something safe as much as a venue holder. And so I think the first thing we into is lots and lots of conversation and consultation. We are very passionate about creating spaces for queer folks and predominantly trans and gender diverse folks, people of color of various intersections and disabled folks. And so when you look into these intersections in specific, the needs of these communities can be one, incredibly diverse and two, evolving as times change. And so I think to me a safe space that is 100% safe is generally um, impossible because needs shift um, quite quickly. And so I think the idea is to, one, expect anything and to make sure that you're open to learn. And I think that's the best advice we can give to venues and whatnot. Um, I think especially in, um, there's a general lack of venues that are safe for people marginalized folk and we are quite interested in building more capacity within venues across Nam so that we can have more and more spaces to organize so that people can come in I mean it's such a surprise that venues some of the biggest venues in Nam aren't accessible for disabled folk um, and some of the biggest producers and event man- like people who organize events aren't thinking of people of color when they produce, or even First Nations folk, for that matter. And so we are hoping to not necessarily rule in that space in any way, but just add to what Nam can offer, really, and keep going and learning and listening as much as possible.
0: 100%. If I could replay that little clip over and over again, I would, that it is not uh, accessible enough. And also seeing... um people's lineups for festivals and there's not enough First Nations DJs on there it's really not that hard (laughs) um, to just take a little bit of extra care and make something um, more accessible more inclusive because generally everybody will have a better time Um, Levi did you have anything else to add about how to create safety in a space or in the music industry in general you know very light question
2: Yeah, um, well, Navi says it very well, especially in relation to events. Um, obviously, it's a lot more complicated as well with the music industry, like producing your own music, producing for others, being an artist, trying to navigate streaming now, and labels, and other freelancing creators. Um, but I do mostly just want to give like a big thanks to Concrete Boots Bar and the team there. They've been really great um, working with us to figure out what our vision for the event is and what they can do to be as accommodating as possible for all the people that we're hoping to get into the space and all of their intersections and needs.
0: Amazing. Beautiful. Um, and I, f- I forgot to ask this question at first, but what is? where did the term moth process actually come from, Nabi?
2: I'm going to give this one to Levi.
0: Okay, Levi. <laughs> That's
2: what I forgot, and Levi knows it better. It's like a really weird, like... Run around definition. It started with, I think it started with um, the movie Arrival, which is one of my favorites. I love Amy Adams, um, and the aliens in that movie refer to dying as like the death process. And we were also really super obsessed with moths at the time. The house that we were living in um, didn't have any screened windows, so there were constantly moths inside, and it was just really beautiful. Um, and so. I kind of came up with the term moth process. I think it was me, but it could have been either of us. Um, And then Navi revealed that moth kind of translates to death in Hindi. And so it kind of still was death process from this movie that I really liked, but it also was stunning original. And it kind of, we've kind of reverse engineered it into something that represents the event. But we we think it's a really cool, catchy title.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: We also think that every event is the process of a
6: moth taking birth. Um, we put a lot of work into what the music, uh, how, how music can look like, and how the music can be curated within the space. We're huge fans of making sure the quality of music and the sound is really good as well. Um, and so we sort of like essentially go into a process of taking birth every month, really, um, to sort of like give life to songs and give life to events and like go through those cycles. And so. It kind of fits, it kind of doesn't, you know, like, see what you think about it.
0: <laughs> I think it's amazing. I think it's very catchy. I've never heard anything like it before. Um, and, yeah, thinking about it, like, you know, this isn't just a series of events. It's like every event is standalone and that you are birthing something new every time. I think that's really beautiful. Um, what are you hoping for the next few moth processes to feel like or be like? What's your What's your vision for it? Maybe um, I'll start with Levi?
2: Um, Ideally, just more and more people showing up, more and more people coming to see what we have to offer and experiencing these events and having a good time. It's definitely, we want it to be more about the people coming into the space than about us as DJs and event runners. Um, And yeah, I think just the further, the longer we do this, the more consistently we do this, the more traction it will get and more people will get to experience it with us.
0: Amazing.
6: we are also really excited about having more DJs as come in as guests and hopefully also take up residency as broad processors. And we are hoping that we can, you know, be a part of NAMS culture and add to that culture because I also think that the arts industry, the performance industry is still quite divided and we are hoping to understand it better through these events and having more and more people come in um, and join us on the journey. We're also hoping to like explore some really funky themes and um, have as many DJs. I think we are only open towards DJs of color who are queer, and so if you're one of them, feel free to get in touch. Um, and if you're someone who wants to learn to DJ, also get in touch if you're a queer person of color because. And if you're in Nam, you'll have to be in Nam for this one. Um, but you know, uh, it's. I think we want to ensure that we can redistribute wealth, and that's where the tickets come in. We want to ensure that people have a good time. We want to ensure that people have spaces so that we can practice community in action. And we also want to play a fuckton of music.
0: That's amazing and very exciting. And I want to also highlight that the event is tomorrow. And can you tell us a little bit, just very briefly, because we're running out of time, how to get tickets?
6: Yeah. So if you look up Moth Process, one word, M-O-T-H-P-R-O-C-E-S-S, so MOT and process, one word. Either on Facebook or on Google, you should be able to find the link. Or try and find me on Instagram. It's Navi Karan, N-A-A-V-I-K-A-R-A-N. And the link is in my bio. And, yeah, if you can't afford a ticket, DM me. We we have so many tickets available, and the cost, money is no barrier. So, you know, come through. We'd love to see you.
0: Amazing. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Navi and Levi. Uh, Hope you have a lovely, lovely day and I'll see you tomorrow.
2: See you tomorrow.
0: We've just heard from Navi Karan and Levi, who, uh, Navi is a DJ, theatre producer, musician and choreographer from India, and Levi is a music producer, singer, songwriter and DJ, and they spoke about the upcoming event, Moss Process, on the 3rd of February, which is tomorrow, at Concrete Boots Bar in Richmond.
1: Hi, my name's Robbie Thorpe. doing Black and Deadly on Fridays from 11 to 12 o'clock. Looking at all the best uh, Black and Deadly music, entertainers and performers around this country. Join me then from 11 to 12, Fridays, Community Radio, Threshia, 8.55 on the AM dial.
3: 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings, cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. And last up, we are joined by Reniga Inpakumar from the Tamil Refugee Council. And Renega is a young Elam Tamil activist and law arts student with a long history of organizing to amplify Elam Tamil issues. And she's speaking with us today in the lead up to the 75th anniversary of Tamil Oppression Day, which falls on the 4th of February. And the Tamil Refugee Council is going to be holding a public demonstration outside the Sri Lankan High Commission in Canberra to commemorate the date and call for justice for Elam Thummels. Renega, thanks so much for joining us.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
3: Yeah, of course. Um, I thought that we could start off with a bit of the history of the date. So I know that February 4th marks uh, the 75th anniversary of Sri Lankan independence from British colonial rule, but of course is commemorated by Elam Tamils as Tamil Oppression Day. So um, can you tell us a bit about this context and these different meanings that are applied to the date and also about the significance of, of, in this process, naming Tamil genocide explicitly?
7: So on the 4th of February every year, the Sri Lankan government celebrates this anniversary of the day as the British colonial regime handing them independence. But for Elam Tamils, it is the 4th of February being a day where it's handed from one oppressor to another, as we see it. So since 1948, Tamils have been targeted by you know, repressive state legislation, economic blockades on Tamil-majority areas, and horrific pogroms that have caused people to leave and, you know, even 2009 causing more to flee. So if we look at certain um, acts that have been passed, we can look at the single-only acts in 1956, the Republican Constitution of 1972, and the burning of Jaffna Public Library in 1981. And these are just key examples of the, you know, Sri Lankan state wanting to um, push genocide on us, even Tamil. And we can see this with our own land, Tamil Elam, being targeted. And it's been used to promote single chauvinism to remove our identity. It's just a horrific day for us Elam Tamils. And it's just the start of us remembering of the beginning of a genocide that has been happening every single day for us till now. Mm,
3: yeah, of course. And, I mean, it is sort of... That uh, a point in the year ca- that can be a touchpoint to focus on this ongoing violence. Uh, so when you spoke with us uh, last year in July 2022, we did discuss Sri Lanka's economic collapse and some of the mass public demonstrations that were occurring against then President Gotabaya Rajapaksa and his government, and how the specific oppression of Ilham Tamils was often glossed over in media reporting. Uh, but given now that Human Rights Watch has reported in January that repressive, re- sorry repressive government action and human rights violations have actually continued under new president Ranil Wickramasinghe. I was hoping um, that you could also speak to some of the specific impacts that are being faced by Elam Tamil since this change in leadership um, and in particular continued opposition to state accountability for these violations of international law and concerns about ongoing framings of, uh, of civil war when we discuss this.
7: So it doesn't matter who is in power. We can see that Whoever's in power, their main um, thing is to continue to oppress Elam Tamil. And if I was to look at the international conventions of genocide, I was to look at specifically Article 2 of the Genocide Convention. It contains the definition of genocide with two main elements, being the mental element and the physical element. And so if I take the example of Muli Baikal, the massacre that occurred in 2009, it was the most brutal period for us Elam Tamils. And this directly had both the mental and physical element. Mental element being that the Lankan state was ready to move all Elam Tamils in the so-called no-fire zone. And they had the mental intent um, from the Lankan state to um, have the evidence of, you know, using certain weapons and this was through having material that aided them to actually kill Elam Tamil's mercilessly. And this was seen with certain um, materials being the US um airplane forms of how they um do war. Mm. And we can even see the physical element which was killing members of, you know, Elam Tamils and this was with serious bodily or mental harm. And this is actually with the various evidence that is online and testimonials of even Tamils, even in Australia, telling Tamil refugee council of them being sexually, mentally tortured mm. in level four, you know, the infamous CID. Um, we've seen, you mm-hmm. know, the n- numerous amount of enforced disappeared um, numbers rise off 2009. And, you know, having that word civil war, used to describe the Tamil plight, diminishes any form of us facing discrimination since 1948. Mm. And having civil war means as if it's just finished, something has finished. It means as if 2009 has finished, but actually it has been a genocide since 1948, causing refugees to leave that island since then. Um, And having civil war means, you know, that Sri Lanka is safe now, and really the ongoing genocide causes fear in the refugees in our community. Um, and that's the reason why Sri Lanka is not safe, even in our own homeland, Tamil mm,
3: Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad that you um, clarified that uh, the sort of equivocation and downplaying of of that ongoing violence that the civil mm-hmm. war framing, um, you know, includes. Uh, so. The Tamil Refugee Council has organized a rally this Saturday, the 4th of February, outside the Sri Sri Lankan High Commission in Canberra. And I'm wondering what actions you're calling for from the Australian government, but also from the international community in terms of scrutiny and pressure on Sri Lanka.
7: So, you know, if I was to bring back to the horrific case of, you know, Muleyvaykar 2009, we can see when the hospitals were being bombed, children, men and women being raped, and our Tamil diaspora actually flooded the streets everywhere in the world, it was just complicit from all the international states. Um, and there has been evidence of the Sri Lankan army raping women, throwing them on buses, shooting naked, tied-up children, and forcing Tamils to do sexual acts before killing them. But it's even with the United Nations, it's an institution tasked with maintaining international peace and security, They did not make a real effort to save Tamil civilians from the carnage. Um, So even now, for instance, our Australian government continuously states that Sri Lanka is safe, but refugees are living in fear every day, not knowing what will happen to them if they are sent back. Mm -hmm. Um, The world has continued to be complicit. So us even Tamils are really calling out the Australian government to stop having relations with the Sri Lankan state. Um, And we're trying to ensure that everyone, even in the common community of the australian society realize that sri lanka is unsafe we want accountability we want a great number of support and we want people to understand that february 4th is not the independence day of sri lanka it is the black day for Tamils. it is the beginning of the numerous deaths that unfold till now in 2023
3: yeah and i mean it is just you know It's hard to capture in words the level of violence and trauma that has been inflicted and how, uh, you know, ongoing state relations and the the promotion of Sri Lanka as a safe state normalizes this kind of violence. Um, So where can listeners find out more information about the rally? And what can people do to support the Tamil Refugee Council's advocacy efforts from a distance if they're not able to attend in person?
7: So definitely follow our media pages such as Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. And if you're unable to attend the rally, we advise that you share the event page, look up Tamil Oppression Day and really learn what is happening. And um, even if you cannot attend, there will be a live um, page running from the event and we'll have the speeches placed up on there so everyone can still attend live.
3: Yeah, fantastic, because um, I think, um, obviously, we're we're based in, in so-called Melbourne, um, and I know that there will be a lot of people who will be keen to support even if they can't get to Canberra in person. So, uh, Renika, is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap up?
7: I think that um, this is just the beginning of Elam Tamil Even in the homeland Tamil, Elam, um, February 4th, they're also rallying there. So it's very exciting to know that um, in Tamil and around the diaspora, we're ready to create change. And I think to, um, February 4th is just the beginning for us.
3: Awesome. Well, um, you know, I encourage people to either attend in person. If you can, show up online. Either way, follow the Tamil Refugee Council's work on social media. Thank you so much, Renega.
7: Thank you so much for having me.
3: And that was Renega Inpakumar from the Tamil Refugee Council. And Renega is a young Elam Tamil activist and law arts student with a history of organizing to amplify Elam Tamil issues. And she spoke with us in the lead up to the 75th anniversary of Tamil Oppression Day, which falls on the 4th of February. And the Tamil Refugee Council is going to be holding a public demonstration outside the Sri Lankan High Commission in Canberra. And uh, as Renega said, there will be uh, live streaming of that if you're not able to get there in person. And you should be able Able to access that via their socials. Now, I understand that that interview did touch on some distressing content and topics. So, if you need to talk to somebody about anything that came up, you can always call Lifeline on 13 That's 13 Or you can also call the Suicide Callback Service on 1300 659 467. That's 1300 659 467. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. We're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we'll give you a bit of a recap of what we covered today. Oh, it's me. Uh, First up, we heard from Dr. Arjun Makijani, who's the president of the Institute for Energy and Environment Research at the Don't Contaminate the Oceans with Radioactivity International Forum webcast, which was held via Zoom on the 17th of December, where he discussed technical details of the flaws in current treatment of waste from the Fukushima incident.
0: And now it's me. Uh, It is. We heard from Amal, who is a Palestinian organizer, advocate and daughter of Palestinian refugees. And she joins us today to touch on the University of Melbourne's adoption of the highly problematic International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of anti-Semitism. And then we had a double interview with goddess Navi Curran and Levi. So Navi Curran is a DJ, theatre producer, musician and choreographer from India. And Levi is a music producer, singer, songwriter and DJ. They both joined us to talk about their upcoming event, Moss Process, which is tomorrow, 3rd of Feb at Concrete Boot Bar in Richmond. And you can also buy tickets on Eventbrite and in our show notes.
3: Yeah, awesome, and um, I'm very excited um, for how Moth Process is going to grow and develop. It seemed like they had such an incredible vision for how to, you know, keep building these events and talking about, you know, questions of access and uh, racial uh, inclusivity that I think are uh, not really touched on as much as they need to be in the queer scene, and especially not engaged in a sort of more than superficial way in most places. Um, and finally, we were joined by Renega Impakumar from the Tamil Refugee Council to talk about Tamil Oppression Day, the 75th anniversary of which falls this Saturday, the 4th of February. So again... Uh, you know, the event, the public demonstration that they're going to be having is going to be held outside the Sri Lankan High Commission in Canberra. But uh, for people who aren't able to get to Canberra, uh, if you're not in Canberra and you can't attend that event, uh, there are going to be live streams of the speeches and you'll be able to find all of that information on the Tamil Refugee Council's social media. So you can look them up on Facebook and then on Twitter, I believe they are at TRC Oz. And I think they've got an Instagram presence as well. So I really encourage people to go find out more about that and um also want to remind people that uh, in the discussion with amal about the uh the University of Melbourne's adoption of the IHRA's definition of anti-Semitism. Once again, uh, you can head to apan.org.au, that's A-P-A-N.org.au forward slash anti-Semitism, because the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network has some really excellent resources on both the concerns about that definition, but also uh, broader concerns about uh, the mis- the misuse of the term anti-Semitism when applied to critiques of the Israeli state. Um, And those are some of those resources are also uh, co-produced with Jewish progressive organizations. So I think it's um, really important to look at that kind of collaborative work when we're making this kind of critique. Um, It looks like. We are coming up to the end of our show, Inez. Do you want to add anything? Do you want to say anything about tomorrow night? Encourage. Oh my goodness! I did realize a question
0: would be asked to me. That's not what radio is about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) No, I am um, playing a set I haven't actually uh, played in a while, um, but I'm going to be playing lots of upbeat dance. Electronic stuff. A little outside of my usual comfort zone of, you know, South Asian disco and house But, uh, yeah, I'm trying something new and hopefully it pays off. And, yeah, I would love for anybody to come. It would be great.
3: I think it's going to pay off in spades. I mean, I think this is the sort of stuff that uh, people, you know, people need and don't know how to ask for just because the scene has been so white for so long, right? Um, but... Yeah, encourage everybody to get along. Go support Inez. Go support Moth Process. And uh, we will catch you next week on Thursday morning breakfast. Goodbye. Bye-bye.
1: 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find NIBS in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.